this is how I like it. We just kind of hang out. We're starting in the fetal time. position, which is really relevant in a way when you <laughs> think about it. Right yeah. Now. yeah. The, the birth of yeah. humanity in a new in a new format, you know? Yeah. <laughs> the birthing process. <laughs> and that's actually a good place to start is um you know, I think one of the, the things that really stood out to me in the last uh, Team Human podcast was when uh, Mark was talking about change and, and change means death and how in our culture, you know, we're, we're afraid to change because we're afraid of a, a death of maybe our old self or a death of the way we used to do things or a death of a, a concept that maybe we hold a little too dear to ourselves. And um, I don't know, I guess the, we're starting in the fetal position, so... Um, Let's start with change and death, I guess, uh, into what's going on right now. I don't know. Doug, what do you yeah. think? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, we're where most of us are aware, we're looking at the, you know, the death of a civilization, you know, I mean, and the, it's hard, you know, it's hard to accept one's individual death, but, you know, the death of a civilization that like takes on a whole other thing. And uh, it doesn't mean the death of humanity or the death of life, but, you know, this, this sort of Western conquistador mentality is, <laughs> you know, it's reached its, its limits. You know, that's part of what my work's been about lately is, you know, that, that even the, the billionaire tech bro, you know, colonialists are realizing that they're going to get hoisted on their own petard. You know, they can't escape from the externalized harm that they've been creating for the last However, a couple thousand years, depending on how you look at it, or longer, you know, that it, that it's really over, you know, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, if you want to mm -hmm. use your, your, the fetal, the fetal <laughs> seal as a possibility, you know, Terrence McKenna and others before him have suggested that, you know, the, the spasms that we're going through as a society, you know, might just be the birth pains you know, that, that if you came upon a woman, you know, delivering a baby and had no idea how babies are born, you'd think that this terrible thing was going on. There's bleeding and sweating and screaming and a giant, you know, alien thing protruding from her belly. There's like, you know, you would think she's she's about to die. So, you know, when you look at our civilization doing what it's doing and the climate change and mass migrations and uh, uh, race wars and... And, and all the stuff that we see going on, you'd think, you know, maybe this is the end, but maybe it's the end of, of something and the beginning of something else. Yeah. You know, could be hopeful. I, I think to, you know, the, this, the death of the conquistador uh, mindset, but you know, the, this Western mindset of not, not connecting it to the, the holistic mindset of whether the, the indigenous or, or East and, uh, bringing that into the fold of like systems thinking and thinking, you know, things in uh, cycles. So, you know, uh, things die and decay only to give life to new seeds of, of thoughts. And it, it builds on the, the thoughts beforehand. And that's why I kind of wanted to talk to you because these things, these ideas that you have been um, dealing with. And when I got onto minds and really started to think about like, before that, I, I didn't think anything about the internet. I was like mainly hanging out at a party with my friends. And I was just like, use internet as like a texting me mechanism. Like, hey, do you guys want to get high? 
and I would go get high with them. And I was like, I didn't care about like Twitter. I didn't care about anything like that until I got up to mine. And I thought, Hmm, this is a weird space. Let me put my poetry on there. And then like, it started to like catch on and it started to do different things. And that's all to say that when I got there, it was like a wild, wild west of ideas. And I thought we need to anchor this to some like lineage. And so I went digging um, I, I knew of you beforehand, but that's when I started really getting into like your work of program or reprogram and the concepts that you were, um, I was retrieving the old concepts and I was thinking, this is what minds needs. It needs like this, like kind of cultural, spiritual, a root uh, meted into it. And this is where like I tie my image into uh, Terrence McKenna's, I think his, his wife actually drew that, that first initial image that I start messing with and I use the bee shaman head and I start like morphing that into my own little thing later on. Um, but that's, that's all to say that I think why I feel so uh, connected to you and I felt safe to like reach out to you in, in weird ways is because I feel like the lineage of um, Robert Anton Wilson's cosmic trigger, like, I heard a story from Eric Davis when he was on a podcast about this. And I think a lot of people have similar experiences. I was like 23. And that summer I called it my psychedelic summer because like, for whatever reason, shrooms were available to me like at will. And I was like in a, a, a weird headspace. And this book, Cosmic Trigger, falls into my lap. And I read it that summer. And curiously enough, while I was reading that book, um, that that song dog days of summer was like playing on the radio a lot and so then mm -hmm. when i get to the part about serious i was like oh that's that's a little nice little joke like how did a robert anton wilson pull that one off you know <laughs> mm. and then i see like these weird little reflections of it but what i loved about the book is his approach and he's like no bs no belief systems and about the whole chapel of perilous and like you either become paranoid or agnostic coming out on the other side. So like when I start having more serious psychedelic experiences and serious like dream um, experiences, I kind of always went back to Robert Anton Wilson and like his approach to it and using the different lenses and even, um, you know, the reality tunnels to which, you know, now when, when I get here and I, I have concepts of filter bubbles and they'll decide and stuff, I was like, oh, yeah, I see what Robert Anton Wilson was talking about and like what what different things we need to to be able to like play in this like meme space, but not like be a true believer in in collapsing into all this kind of stuff. Um, so I, I don't know. I just wanted to share my connection to Cosmic Trigger, which I think is a connection uh, to you and your work. Yeah, it's interesting. You start with minds. I mean, meaning, I mean, for most people probably don't know about minds. Yeah. Minds is a kind of an alternative. When you say minds, I think about the minds conference on the well that I used to run. Mm -hmm. they, Howard Reingold asked me to run that. That was back in the, in the you know, earliest 90s, late 80s, early 90s. Um, but when you say minds, you mean the uh, one of the uh, alternative social networks out there, yes. which is a, a weird, you know, and I've dipped in there a couple of times and, you know, it's, it's hard. These social networks are so, um, I mean, maybe it'll change now, but you know, they get so easily filled with kind of the, you know, irate, you know, incel messaging and kind of alt-right 
uh, uh, you know, shenanigans, uh, which, you know, they deserve their places to talk and, and all that, but it's just not, um, it's, it's as a place so far, it's been hard for me to feel like, Oh, I want to dig into this social network now and interact with more people about more things. I'm still, um, I still like the internet that you were talking about. You know, you email somebody and some text messages and say, go meet me here. Let's get high, you know, or (laughs) you find a few people or, or, you know, the slower kind of, you know, chess by mail um, quality of genuinely asynchronous Mm. networks, you know, a, a real BBS where, you know, someone posts an article and then somebody reads it and the next day they post their reply and you have a kind of an in-depth conversation with, you know, admittedly a, a filtered group of people. And then I guess there's some live now, you know, I haven't really done the clubhouse thing, but, um, you know, I, I imagine it points to these spaces like on Discord on, you know, you can have these audio rooms and places you can go and all. So it's interesting. But yeah, I, I thought of you as uh, uh, not older person, but older, older internet connection. Like, cause I know, you know, are you serious? And the Mondo 2000 universe also. So, yeah. and you make these videos, you know, which is you make videos in a, uh, a visual grammar that I would say predates the sort of social network mashup flurry of, of minds. If you know what I mean, you know, there's a, a yeah. Uh, there's a richer legacy of of film editing in in your work. So when you so it's interesting for me just temporally when you say oh and we are on Minds and Minds needs more of this and all that I'm like well it's just it's interesting. It would be like I don't know me having a conversation with like Christopher Hitchens and saying yeah but you know Twitter doesn't really let us do this or I think Twitter needs more of us doing that. Where it's like, <laughs> wait it's we are so much it's such. It's such a bigger thing, but yeah, yeah I am still interested in, cause I know, you know, Bill Ottman is a good guy and he, he keeps a foot in a lot of different camps. He went to the white house, you yeah. know, for that, yeah. that sort of, it was mostly alt-rightish social media companies to, you know, they, that Trump was hoping would, you know, somehow come to his aid, I guess, <laughs> if he was going to get shut down, which he finally did, you know, but uh, <laughs> uh, I, I feel like he's taken the heat for, just you know it's the same as as you know when i read the um the ceo or of of epic that just allowed parlor to come onto epic you know parlor for people who don't know is this kind of place where you know like the the people who organize the capital insurgency and stuff they people like that organize on there so most of the the server said you can't be there and this one called epic said no no we'll let you come and uh the reason why they want it is because they think let's house these people and, and kind of love bomb them, you know, just, you know, mm-hmm. be there and, and, and rather than have them just go off into some secret, horrible corner and make bomb plots, you know, let's, let's have them in a, in a more public space where we can actually engage. So it's an interesting, it's just a whole interesting set of questions. And I just don't feel like we're talking about stuff like the rebirth of humanity in a new context and psychedelics number 23 and Robert Anton Wilson and all. And I just don't, when I talk about that, somehow minds, the social network doesn't come to mind as the landscape that engenders that sort of 
rich, open thinking. Although I would be certainly open to it being that. You, you know, that's an interesting. I, I understand what you're saying because, you know, I'm, I'm kind of talking and I'm even talking about like making this weird little movie on minds about, and I call it the minds underground because there, there is the perception of what minds is. And I've been on mine since uh, 2015. And, and in that time, it was wild. Like what you were talking about, like the wild, like that's how we were. Like I remember jumping on like thread after thread after thread talking about like quantum physics and then talking about blockchain. And I didn't know what blockchain uh, was at the time. And then I, then I started yeah. a podcast on, on blockchain and I learned about blockchain. And then that paid off like three years later. Uh, I got some Ethereum. <laughs> but, uh -huh. you know, like all these weird, wild ideas. I got exposed to, and 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 at that time, we we it, it was anything was possible. Like you know, uh, when when Hunter S. Thompson says like you had to be there in the moment when the, like the water crest, and I was like that's how I felt like in that moment of the beginning of of mines, and I'm like that's why like I kind of like nostalgically hold on to that that moment. Right. It's interesting. So, like, yeah. yeah, it's almost like it recapitulated the the trajectory of the internet itself you know that it starts out open-minded and crazy and this and then ends up getting kind of hijacked by one group or hijacked by another and you know and we always then go talk about those good old days and how do you maintain the you know that it's like well it's like with your favorite band you know when they were a garage yeah. band playing in your local bar and then by the time they get on mtv and are at stadiums it's like oh this isn't what it really is these people don't know yeah it's hard. I mean, a few bands, a few bands hung on to it. You know, the Grateful Dead by hook or by crook. You know, I guess by never by refusing to get better, um, <laughs> on a certain level. You know what I mean? By well, by, by, I, I yeah. mean, I think that's that's what I uh, like. You know, David Bowie kind of in that sense, like keeps on transforming himself um, and and keeps on moving his thing forward in in a in a sense that like you know, uh, as an artist is really um, something, you know, to, to look at, like, like, whoa, he like achieved this like great, like every soul transforming himself and keeping like relevant and even keeping to like evolving his sound. Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting, <laughs> but this you could look at him versus say, you know, Madonna who did the same thing. I feel like with Bowie doing it, I feel like he was almost killing the last incarnation in order to, have a new one, you know, as opposed to, you know, I always felt like Madonna, it was a bit more of a commercial thing of like, okay, I've used up this one. I better come up with, yeah. you know, something else to titillate them, you know, like, like some kind of extended strip tease. Um, and, and what Bowie was doing was much more like what, you know, Genesis Peoridge talks about, you know, that you've got to, once you recognize yourself, you got to kill yourself to then move, you know, you got to change your name and move on and move to the next one, you know, and, and, you know, get reborn, keep getting reborn, you know, which is another, it's a personal way of going back to this sort of, uh, uh, you know, the, the, this, this fear of annihilation we were talking about at the beginning, that as an individual, you keep practicing dying, you practice ego, you know, ego death, and then you get reborn as something else. And that, I think people who've done that again and again and again, are more comfortable with the idea of their society or their civilization dying and transforming it to something else. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think this goes to this idea that I had, and I guess I'll share this like story now, is very similar in the sense that 
I had this experience when I was cooking in the kitchen and LeBron James came in and like everybody was going like nuts. LeBron James, LeBron James. And I'm just like, oh, does this mean like I have to like prep differently? Like, what does this mean for like my work? Like, is he going to mess up my, 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 my line? Like I prepped for like regular kitchen and now we have a private party. And so I wasn't as like enthralled into the celebrity of it. And then later I tell my dad, my dad was really excited about it. And then later I thought, who would I be excited about? I'm like, Robert Anton Wilson, he's dead. Timothy yeah. Leary, he's dead. <laughs> and uh, Terrence McKenna, he's dead. I'm like, damn it. I need like relevant, like living uh, mentors. And I'm like, my two thoughts were Saul Williams for poetry and then Douglas Rushkoff. And oh. so then like, and then so I go, I go, okay, that's uh, okay. Now I feel a little bit better that like, not like everybody I'm listening to is dead. I guess uh, I even wrote some lines about that, about like all my, uh, all the dead philosophers that I'm dragging through the streets. <laughs> uh, so yeah the this weird thing is the people that that the counterculture heroes that you're talking about you know when they were alive they were mm-hmm. pretty damn accessible you know i mean i knew all these people really personally i mean tripped with them and did fun things i mean this is it was uh it's odd. It's odd. I guess partly because it was smaller. You know, it was a the counterculture was small. There was, you know, Demando two thousand or reality hackers kind of letting us know who's doing what. And they had this house in Berkeley, and you could pretty much just go there. You know, or you would do. I mean, I remember there was this one moment where it felt like, oh wow, this is getting big. And that's when, um, in nineteen ninety nine, Richard Metzger did. Um, the uh, DisinfoCon, which was it, DisinfO was this website he had, and it really brought together uh, sort of the Crowley people, you know, like Kenneth Anger and Joe Coleman and G- Genesis Peorage on the one side, and then like comics people like Grant Morrison, and then sort of writer thinker people like me and Robert Anton Wilson, and um, and it was just this thing, and it, like it sold out really fast, you know couple thousand people and we're like oh wow there's a um we're part of something here this is this this uh, uh this thing got 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 bigger and then you know and then the i guess the patriarchs of it kind of died off so now we're left you know and i remember with um having this talk with mark pesci maybe 10 years ago or just whenever about when uh i guess when terrence died and Ra had died and we were looking, and, and without mentioning names, there were a couple of people who looked like they were trying to uh, take the mantle of, you know, new mm-hmm. psychedelic patriarch or something, like the great psychedelic expert <laughs> of our generation. And and Pesci and I kind of realized, no, no, what's going to make our generation, what's the, the Gen X patriarchs or different. matriarchs, if you will, what's going to make us different is that none of us are going to be the ones, you know, we're going to, it's yeah. going to be a distributed, networked, collective phenomenon. You know, we don't need another hero is is true. You know, that's the end of a certain kind of, you know, masturbatory rock and roll and the beginning of a, a collective, again, less conquistador, you know, uh, you know, white knight phenomenon. Doug, I think symbolically um, that's Trump. Like he he was supposed to be the the god king, uh, you know yeah. the philosopher king to solve everything and look at him, he had no clothes on and um, I think history will show that you know that that kind of narrative foul to this like 
weirdest, most absurd version of it and to show that we um, shouldn't. Have yeah, I mean, it could anymore. have worked if he was a different person. And, uh, and what I mean yeah, is totally. if he were, if he understood that the role of whatever that is, patriarch, philosopher, king, dude, or woman has to be more a vessel than the thing, you know, because, because what happened was, and we all saw it, it's that he turned out not to be anything. It was whoever was around him, whoever spoke to him last, it, he became the, the sum total of a, of a projection of a crowd of people like the Q people who projected into him the savior from the pederasty, the savior from the deep state, when actually he was just a failed real estate tycoon, reality TV guy who didn't even understand what the, the average Q person would project onto him as what he would be able to do and what the deep state was. He didn't have the same understanding as your, your average Twitter, um, your average Twitter person saying what it is, that Trump's mission should be. But you think, and what he did get, the kinds of missions that were projected onto him were kind of really dark, kind of awful ones. You know, very triumphalist, Christian, messianic sort of uh, 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 colonial sort of nationalist ones, you know, Heidegger, you know, writ large or something, just this awful stuff. And then I start to think, well, what kind of leader could have been, could have played that empty vessel, project onto me what you want thing, but done it in a way that engendered our highest, most uh, uh, collaborative, cooperative visions of a future of humanity rather than, you know, white conquest or something. So I, I feel like he was playing with, even though he didn't know it, he was playing with a certain kind of magical projection palette, but just not doing it in a way that, uh, you know, brought us anywhere positive. I think your image froze. We're still recording though. So Meg, what are you thinking? Yeah, well, you know, the whole thing, <laughs> uh, yeah, the whole thing about the internet is like, it, it, to me, it's like a one great big virtual reality platform. And it kind of brings me on to think about this this movie that had a huge effect on me as a kid, Tron, yeah. um, which came out in 1982. I think I saw the movie for the first time probably a few years after its release in 1982. So I was six in 1982, so I'm a, <laughs> I'm a Gen X, you know, latchkey kid person. Um, so I think I was probably about eight years old when I first saw it. But the first thing I noticed about Tron was it had this very distinctive visual style. Um, and this kind of immediately pulled me into the program, you know, for, for a good turn of phrase. You know, and, and putting it mildly, I was kind of mesmerized by that film. I thought it was amazing. It had a great, it had a massive effect on me. Mm. You know, it kind of got me thinking, what if it could be possible, you know, for human beings to enter a game you know, a game, a gaming situation, VR, whatever, you know, virtual reality, and actually become part of it, rather than, you know, controlling the characters within the game from the outside looking in. So, of mm. course, you know, my ability to perceive this as a young child in the 1980s was kind of akin to 
the TV being like a portal whereby the person enters the game through the television screen. (laughs) That was how I initially viewed it. And I obviously at that time, although I didn't have a term for it, I was thinking along the lines of virtual reality. Um, And that concept fascinated me. So, and then, you know, fast forward a bit as an adult, I look at the movie Tron and I... um, I don't know if it was for everybody, but Meg was pretty choppy right there. I sent her a message and I got kicked out of the room. But I, I know what Meg was talking about, Tron and like going into the video game. And I think this connects to an article that we were reading on the Team Human um, Discord about like um, QAnon from a, a, a gamer, uh, a, de- a game designer's point of view. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was talking about that since the beginning of Q. I mean, I'm glad that a real gamer, a, a game designer is, has agreed. But yeah, from the beginning, it's basically been a LARP, a live action role playing game. And it, I mean, yeah. it's a, it's a it, there's a bunch of shifts in the media universe that made that possible. I mean, one was the the you know having a reality TV star become president and to have politics turn into reality TV. I mean, that's sort of was one of the crossover points. But yeah, the the brilliance of Q is what they would do, the, the original Q writers, is throw out a few Q drops, which are just these like, these points. It was like, um, they wouldn't tell a story. They would leave a few data points and then let the audience, as if they were doing fan fiction, try to assemble the story from it. So you ended up with an online phenomenon that was a bit like those first four or five weeks of, of when Westworld was airing on HBO and nobody knew quite what was going on. And people would go into chat rooms and have long conversations and say, oh, no, this person is in the movie. This person's not in the simulation. And this is a robot. And that one's going to turn out to be a human. And then what's in the outside world? So they kind of world build as amateurs outside the fiction and try to figure it out before it before the climax happens. And what Q did was sort of said, okay, instead of using Harry Potter or Dungeons and Dragons or Westworld as my source material, I'm gonna use news and fake news tidbits as the source material and then let people try to piece together a story from that. But what it led to was this tremendous desire for people to make ultimate sense of what's going on, which is such a sweet human urge that what is it all? When does it end? What does it mean? Who's in charge? Who's the bad guy? Who's the good guy? And when will the story reach its climax and God comes down and saves us all and the thing happens and all the pederasts are exposed and all the bad go to hell and the good go to heaven. And it's like, sorry, but that's the narrative. That's the story ending climax thing. You just don't get in the real world. There is no thing. There's no, you know, there's no eschatology to it. It's not, uh, uh, you know, you're not going to get to it. And uh, that's, you know, it's it's the sweet and sad thing. But yeah, that's the problem with these, this kind of LARP, you know, in a great LARP, a great fantasy role-playing game, the great Dungeons and Dragons game, the people who know how to do it, they play it like an infinite game. You realize the point is not to get to the end. The point is to keep the game going. That's the sustainable, beautiful, you know, uh, that was the lesson I got anyway from it. And what we're seeing instead is this is why they didn't want us playing Dungeons and Dragons because we couldn't handle it. They were scared we were going to become, you know, 
whatever the 1970s equivalent of crazy LARPing alt-right, you know, uh, triumphalists is. <laughs> you know, it's set and setting, you know, it's set yeah. and setting again. It's all about this, you know, the same old stuff you're talking about at the beginning, fear of death, fear of this, you know, fear of death is only as big as your fear uh, of the story going on. You know, <laughs> I think people are more <laughs> afraid of, of, what do you mean? It keeps going. Uh, uh, that's, you know, they want a fucking juncture. They want an end point. They want, <laughs> you know, this, this is, I think, uh, you know, your influence on when I changed our, our show before it was the Minds Channel show. And then I had a, a podcast with, with Meg and another uh, member, and they had this idea of 24 hour imaginarium a day, of just imagination and do whatever you want to do and post it up. And like, it was this, this big campaign. So I had them on the show. And then I was like, in the middle of the show, I was like, that's a great idea, but like, why don't we have it infinite? Like, why is it just 24 hours? Like, let's, let's make it infinite. And then that's when we had the infinite imaginarium to like yeah. keep Partly, the play going. Yeah. I mean, that's the old question people ask after Burning Man, you know, they come out, why can't we just live like that all the time? You know, <laughs> or, you know, when people, you know, just peep past the peak of an acid trip and they have that first, the first moment of come down when, and then they go, they spend the next six hours like, oh, how do we stay there? How do we, you know, huh? Oh. Um, which is the problem with LSD. You know, it's so, uh, for many anyway, Wrong. it's so <laughs> linear. It's so, you know, it's such a, a a, a, a heroic arc and it's like okay you know that that now what it's just be here just be here now is so you know that's the hard part for people yeah that is um but is, that was like the main i guess crux or no the the push for what dale was saying about the 24-hour imaginarium was just for it was like a, a, a trick to get people more present whatever they were doing because like her campaign was like okay for 24 hours i'm going to create but i'm going to like show you just a snapshot of it but like really what i'm doing is just being aware in my place and having friends over and drawing and painting or whatever the the main thing was i remember meg she was like oh i can't get into the to the breathing room and then her, her <laughs> kid said that was oh, funny but, yeah, yeah you're, you're in the that, and so, like, what we learned... It's like always, you don't yeah. need to get into a physical room. You're already in the Imaginarium because it's in your brain. That's the thing. You, you can create in your brain. That was the whole irony of that, that situation, you know, when we initially <laughs> planned it. Um, but, yeah, all this kind of QAnon stuff, it, it, it works on the dopamine in the brain. It's, you know, when people um, are given this thing where they can decipher codes, cue drops, riddles... You know, when they just when somebody deciphers them and they they work it out, they get a huge amount of kind of applause from other QAnon followers or other followers who are part of that kind of group. Um, and that gives them a huge buzz. And also kind of unknowingly, they are creating the story as opposed to deciphering what we would term as truth, what's actually the truth. So they're actually creating the story as they go along. You know, my view is that with QAnon, it's, it's a kind of almost like this is my personal view on it, perspective, that it, it's a huge human experiment where there, lots of data can be collected um, on human behavior. And obviously, that's much, much the way the Internet is anyway. You know, it's all about collecting data and information and 
you know, if you're somebody that is constantly looking at certain things, like it might be that you want to lose weight or you're, you want to go on a diet. And then all of a sudden, as if by magic, all these <laughs> videos and information is coming into your feed that's relevant to your thought process and, and what you want to do. Um, yeah, and it's obviously addictive. It's addictive. And that's kind of dangerous because obviously human brains are we're we're biocomputers so we can be programmed you know the human brain is programmable um and you know obviously the key is that we we it's kind of like a double-edged sword with the internet because you can connect with people so rapidly you know like all of us now we're all discussing some great stuff um possibly more on a, a higher consciousness level but other people are interacting in a virtual reality sense but they're not conscious of it and it can also be very divisive as well you know yeah i mean part of the i always thought that it as long as people accept it as play it's really useful but they don't see it as play you know they they you know they think they've got some kind of certainty about things and that's you know once you try to lock it down you know, it's kind of scary at that point. You know, you lose your, your, you lose it all, you know, and that's, that's, it's, it's a shame, you know, it's a shame that for me anyway, that these, these tools, I thought not just the internet, but even, you know, fantasy role playing and, and collective improvisation and the yes and style of narrative creation, that all of those would engender a kind of an openness and a weirdness. And I guess what these people really needed was Robert Anton Wilson. You know, that would have helped them see that, oh, you know, be be universally agnostic, you know, get, you know, everything is like, okay. You know, if you listened to um, Art Bell, he was a great, you know, had a great conspiracy radio show. And the beauty of it was he would let everybody talk and he would, you know, be open and fun and inviting of the weirdest ideas. Um, and it turned it, it made it a wonderful play space rather than like this, uh, uh, what's his name? Alex Jones or somebody about, oh, this is real. They're, they're drugging the frogs to make them gay because Democrats want <laughs> gay frogs. And it was like, oh she my God. Like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you I know, think this is what happens with, uh, wisdom texts and sacred texts when they get turned into like they're literal like then they because into like a religion and then they get to like follow the literal like all oh, the the bible is, is literal and you have to take this like instead of yeah. uh, engendering it as like poetry or art and i think yeah. this is one concept early on i got from you was about uh, the old testament as source code for for um everything <laughs> Yeah, but the beauty of the Old Testament, I mean, to the to the what we call the first hearers, because people didn't read Torah, they listened to it. And mm -hmm. the first hearers got the jokes. You know, the first hearers mm -hmm. understood that that Jacob's 12 sons, you know, that each one of them was almost a a, a racist satirical uh description of 
one of the tribes. So, you know, Benjamin was like the Benjaminites and, and, you know, Joseph was like the Jude or, or Judah was like the Judeans. And, 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 you know, so there'd be like Simeon would be the really warlike one. And it was, it was because the Simeon tribe was a warlike tribe, but they knew that there weren't like these brothers. They understood that this was a myth for these disparate tribes to consider themselves one people and to sort of, you know, co, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, to, to, uh, to collaboratively uh, run the the you know whatever their you know Palestine at the time, so it was uh it's funny and it's only we later who look at it so literally. But you know the the amazing thing is you know so I write this book. Uh, I'm going to try to republish it myself now. I wrote this book called Nothing Sacred, which looked at um, at that sort of element of Judaism. The idea of Judaism was that you don't have any idols and everything you can tear down and you, you keep re-examining everything. And, uh, and in there, I'm talking about how, um, how the Jews mistook or currently mistake these stories, these wonderful allegories and metaphors for reality. And part of the reason they do, sadly, is because they're trying to use Torah and lines of Torah as land claim to say, oh, look, God says we own this piece of land. Therefore, this is ours. You know, and it's like, so when you need the Torah to be a literal legal document guaranteeing a piece of land, then it loses its hyperdimensional uh, uh, quality it loses its its because this is really deep stuff. I mean, you think that yeah. you know something that Crowley wrote is deep and multidimensional. Well, these these dudes, you know, over the thousand years or whatever they wrote these stories, they've got some pretty deep shit going on in there. But you lose <laughs> access to it if you take it literally. Then it's no longer this 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 thing. You you, you collapse it, uh, you know, right? Like, so it's it's like the what what they're talking about is is, well, I guess now we're going to call it hyperspace or whatever, a visible landscape. Um, that's like the ocean of possibilities. That's, you know, when you get there in the dream time, like it's it's um, this whole like wave of, of information. And then, you know, you collapse it down in here, but it's just pointing back towards that. And <laughs> this is kind of funny because I was talking to my other friend about this. And I think it's similar in the respect of what you're saying about how they were hearing it and like, you know, when, when you go and see somebody like a comic and they tell their jokes in, in real time, you you get a feel of like what the audience is going on. Like there's a whole set and setting that happens within the clubhouse and they're telling their jokes. But then you isolate a portion of their joke and then you put it on the Internet and then it loses all context of it and then it gets obscured. So, you know, when you're talking about the um, the oral tradition versus then when it gets collapsed down to the to the written tradition. And then now, you know, fast forward uh, where we have the internet is a horrible uh, way and texting is a horrible way to communicate. You can't get tone or whatever. So like a lot of jokes like fall and then even to miscommunications, um, you're not too sure if that person really gets what words you're using and everybody has like slightly different ways to uh, show those words. But you know, when you're in person with somebody and this is what Doug kind of always goes to. Um, you could get that that feel of that person. You, you could get more of the vibe of what's going on in that in that moment of communing with other people and being able to like read them on, and on a different level of just one bandwidth of it. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it also has to do with not 
wanting anything particular, you know, <laughs> from the other people, right? It's just people <laughs> are having a hard time just being with each other. You know, it's, yeah. it's, we, we tend to look at, especially now, I mean, I got so little time these days. I tend to, to look at things for their utility value. Oh, what do I get out of that hour if I do this versus what do I get out of that hour if I do that? And <laughs> it's such a restricted way of, um, you know, of understanding the world. But in some ways we have to, because there's people who will take, 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 you know, from us, you know, every hour, every second of your day could easily be absorbed by just doing what everybody in your inbox is asking, <laughs> is asking for. And it's hard to refuse people sometimes, but, you know, in some ways we have to, you know, uh, uh, start to recognize what is our soul asking to do with this time. And it might be just, no, I can't help all of you. I'm going to walk around and look at dogs or something. Yeah. It's like using the time wisely. And like, I think the thing with the, the internet is you have to be some kind of wizard of communication to get your point across. Um, and obviously you can use like, even with emojis and stuff, you can use them in a really genius way, but on, on the other side of the coin, you can totally steer somebody in the wrong direction of what you're actually trying to communicate to them um, mm. because you might be a little bit free and easy with the use of emojis rather than actually writing the words and communicating exactly what you mean. Yeah, or at least as well as words can because, you know, there's other biases with them, but it it certainly feels, for me, it's easier to articulate something with with words than with a uh well with one of those little emojis there's just not that many of them you know i mean mm -hmm. <laughs> you know it's it's hard yeah. but then they all mean different things like i didn't know like you can't send a red heart to somebody you have to send pink ones did you know that no, if you send a red know. heart it has a really specific no, Thing. What's the difference between the red heart, you know, the big red heart, like, like on WhatsApp, you can send a great big red You're not allowed to do heart, that. can't you? Someone told um, me that if I send a red heart, it means that you want to fuck them or something. Oh, God. And you, <laughs> so the you pink one's send, like friendly. I didn't know that. Yeah. I just, yeah, I just kind of thought any heart that. was, was a good That might just be the girls of, of the greater New York area who say that. <laughs> there's key differences between the hearts you know you've got like a pink heart with a little pink another little pink heart inside it yeah. uh you've got a heart with a little thing around it and then you've got like the great big red heart and there's like distinct differences i actually didn't know that i thought they you know you could kind of just choose between them and they all kind of made meant the same thing oh you can't you can't oh my god i didn't know that you better go back and look at what you've said. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, I've misled people. Christ. <laughs> yeah. Breaking hearts everywhere, Meg. Yeah. Oh no, I've misled everyone. <laughs> oh no. Yeah, I mean the emoji thing. As I said, you can be very creative with emojis if you're good with words and you're a bit of a verbal wizard. But you know, like you were saying, Doug, nothing replaces actual words when you're communicating and I'm, I'm always, I love words and I love writing. So I'm always very mindful about how I write things um, and what I include into it. And probably 
to be be honest, I'm probably a bit too over the top sometimes where I could be a, could have been a lot more simplistic. And people are probably thinking, yeah, that was a little bit over the top. But, you know, I kind of understood what she meant. And, and also then you have to bring into the thing that everybody has a different per- perception of what something means to them based on their own brain wiring. You know, everybody's got a slightly different wiring to the brain based on nurture uh, you know what they've been brought up with um, the experiences of, of role models in their life and stuff like that you know everyone has a slightly different brain wiring so everybody is going to have a slightly different interpretation of what you say even if you use a lot of words and you pay a lot of attention uh, attention to describe what you mean you know not everybody's going to see it in the same way they're going to perceive yeah. it differently. Yeah. I mean, that's, again, that's one of the things that, you know, that psychedelic people, you know, pick up on when they're, when they're tripping at that. Oh my gosh, anything I say can mean a thousand different things. I mean, the, the interesting thing about that phenomenon though, you know, because I've, I've been in that space too, where it's like, oh, wow, I just said this and they could mean to that person. It could mean that I said this, that, that, or that. Um, and then you try to clarify and you realize, oh, well, that could mean this, 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 or that. But when you, if you listen to people who are tripping speaking, the reason why that's true is because they're speaking in the most vague metaphorical language. You know, you'll, you'll just watch people while they're tripping and they're speaking and they'll be saying, it's really so, isn't it? I mean, yes, I've always thought that, always. Indeed, the world is just so strange and I'm strange. You know, and it's just like, what? You know, they're not... They're, <laughs> And the reason why it sounds like what they're saying could be interpreted in any number of ways, it's because they're not really saying anything or they're thinking a million things and then coming up with some, you know, motto rather than the thing. It's, it's, it's interesting, the uh, people's language in those spaces. And that's what made, you know, people like uh, uh, Terrence McKenna so truly remarkable is that, you know, they could be more stoned than any of us have ever been and still make total sense you know and use that encyclopedic knowledge of you know whitehead and everyone else to bring that you know bring that to the fore and everybody else who's you know trying to be along for the ride is just you know sitting there in a stupor barely able to make a sentence you know and he could still he was so acclimated to those spaces that he could you know still still uh, uh you know bring his full uh, uh you know frontal lobe to bear <laughs> yeah that is uh something you know it's a skill set <laughs> uh yeah. well we're gonna start wrapping things up and i thought that was a good place to start um wrapping things up i kind of want I, I lastly doug um to talk more about your creative work and um you know i, I remember recently in a, in a podcast you were kind of saying team human is like gonna be a certain like death for you as far as like writing and then maybe pursuing more creative stuff is, uh, is this still on the horizon for you in your trajectory of your work? Yeah. I mean, I guess partly, you know, as you get older and as time speeds up, you know, I start thinking about how many projects do I have left that I can really do? You know, it feels, it feels more finite now, you know? So, you know, and this is true with anybody and, and, and anything, anything you choose to do is an opportunity cost to something else. And, you know, I'm, I was thinking a lot over the last years about 
you know, my decision to pursue, you know, writing these books and getting involved in interactive, you know, technology and theory about it all. Um, when I was doing theater, originally I was a theater person and I had gotten really fed up with theater because it was so expensive for people to go to a play and it was only like rich people going and it had this kind of elitist thing about it. And then the net seemed like it would be the people's medium and everyone could have access and all that. But the net's become about big business and theater is left, you know, for, for in some ways for the poor. Um, so I want to, uh, I want to make a theater again or, or play in that play in that space again. I mean, I am doing another book. I was going to do a, a theater piece this year, but COVID kind of put that on hold. So I decided to do another book loosely, loosely based on that uh, piece I wrote a year or so ago about the, the billionaire survivalists and sort of what, what mentality leads to that, uh, that kind of uh, insulation uh, mindset, you know, where they're trying to earn enough money to get away from the rest of us rather than participate in civilization. They see it as something to escape from, you know, so I want to kind of, I want to uh, interrogate some of that and where it came from, but yeah, I want to play again. I mean, the, the paperback of my graphic novel, Alistair and Adolf just came out or it's coming out in a week or so. And um, I mean, I miss that kind of play doing a, a, a graphic novel is kind of a sigil and um, not having the same obligation as I do in some nonfiction book to make a clear literal sense all the time, you know, but to come up with, with images and ideas and paradoxes that um, can be unsettled and incomplete and still count. Um, so, yeah, I want to start playing in some of those spaces. I really enjoyed working with this guy, Mike Oming, who's a graphic artist. Um, you know, I might, get involved in the documentary space again. There's some interest for that. But again, documentaries, for the most part, are supposed to be like journalism, you know, and I'd like to do a, a documentary that's not, uh, that can tell deeper truths than the sort of historical, literal things that that I could tell in a, in a more journalistic piece. So yeah, I want to, I want to play a bit, you know, and, and, I mean, I took a job, my first real job since being a waiter. You know, I took a job as a, a professor at CUNY, the City University of New York. And it's like, if that's going to pay the bills, you know, if I have a job, then I really owe it to myself not to do any work that's just kind of that, that that's for the gig. In other words, don't write articles because they're offering money. Don't do a talk because there's cash in it because I got the cash, right? I've got the the teaching job is enough to 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 get by. I mean, assuming they don't close the schools or anything, which anything can happen these days, but assuming that works, so then I should go nuts in uh, in my regular work. At least play play on the on the on the edges. You know, I got something out of you know playing keyboards with Genesis P. Orridge and Psychic TV or, you know, writing graphic novels or writing the novel Ecstasy Club. Or, um, you know, I'm looking now at talking to some producers about making Ecstasy Club as a TV series, like a streaming series. So something just I kind of want to play in some fun, weird way rather than, you know, uh, uh, do something uh, uh, important. Can I can I uh, I was uh, doing a deep dive on on you and um, reading different things. And I was actually reading the DisinfoCon um, interview. And mm. in it, I had this idea of a TV uh, series for you. It's 
you as a, the media consultant, loosely based on you. It's like you, but looking more like Don Draper, you know? Um, so it's like a, a reverse madman. And you're going around, uh, you know, liberating um, these admin from uh, giving them, you know, enlightenment to, to either. Well, first, you know, your folly is that you try to get them to quit, and then you realize that there's they're actually in leverage points, and then trying to get them to, um, you know, use use their power to give interesting media to to the masses. But then, then it leads to you actually uh, manifesting that commercial of Pepsi giving it to the the riot police um you remember that commercial and so like uh-huh. you're you're like that's like the end of it you know like in the end of Mad Men where he has like this like like yeah. fantasy of like a coca-cola commercial but like your whole life like led up to just um you're responsible for that commercial and um so i fucked it up in the end yeah yeah well though on a certain level you know <laughs> what's that woman's name kylie is that kylie jenner or caitlin yeah. jenner Kylie, Caitlyn Jenner. It's a Jenner, a Jenner person. Um, (laughs) It's not a Kardashian. It's a Jenner. Yeah. Um, She. People get pissed off if I say something like this, but what the heck? I feel like she didn't just reveal Pepsi's desperate attitude to co-opt a trend and reduce a trend to fashion but she kind of revealed how much of youth protest is fashion. You know, in, in a certain way, I mean, BLM is real. I mean, it's real. And these are real causes and George Floyd and it's all real, real, real. But um, there are the fact that they were able to identify certain kind of fashion trends, certain kinds of slogans, certain kinds of hand motions that there is, um, there's a performative aspect to that, that it's interesting seeing and, and how much, certainly when you see it in New York with a whole bunch of college kids, how much of a political movement is just friggin' trendy for them, you know, and a lot of it is, you know, so I look at like Extinction Rebellion, which I'm part of, you know, and, and since the very early days, but so much of Extinction Rebellion, Rebellion was about making climate change punk and cool again, you know, in that in that performative way. And um, there's a power to that, but it's almost always short term. You know, if you make something fashionable, then you're always going to risk going out of fashion, you know, and you've got to somehow tap into something that's at a deeper layer of uh, uh of society than uh, uh, that that your fashionista uh, activism, and I felt like that Jenner, uh, or maybe unwittingly, revealed something about our activism that we need to look at. I I think this is cool because I think we could circle it back around to when we were talking about David Bowie versus Madonna and like the. <laughs> the ritual or like more sacred uh, form of transforming versus like the branding, trying to like stay relevant uh, transformation of, of those two, what we were talking about earlier in this um, 
I was talking about this with my friend about how we don't have the discipline now to do like social movements like of Gandhi and uh, Martin Luther King. And I think this is kind of like this more performative version of it instead of more sacred rooted into the soul of, you know, the, the chanting and, and bringing people in communion together instead of just right. like, oh, we're posting it. We're posting it to the right. quintessential also, of the Capitol was just memeing each other to death, like when they stormed yeah. the Capitol. And it speaks to an impatience, you know, it, it, there's an, because we'll say, as I've said before, I've said, right, well, what about Gandhi, Martin Luther King and Mandela and, you know, the, 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 that kind of activism, that rooted spiritual activism and say, oh, well, yeah, but look, that didn't work. You know, look where we are. And I'm like, no, it did work. It's just, we got to keep going. Of course it worked. It's just, it's not over. You know, it's like, yeah. so it's not like, oh, no, so let's switch the channel and try something you know, faster. It's like, the, sorry. Yeah, it's <laughs> the slow, steady progress, right? Of uh, It's hard to see that um, only when yeah. you kind of look back. Yeah. You want instant okay, results, you know? It's like you may not get it in your <laughs> lifetime even, you know? Yeah, and this is, I think, I think what's important about the lineage and what you're saying about, like, my media seems, or I seem to be older than what I guess the perception is, is because of kind of, trying to get rooted in something more than just what's happening right now that like these ideas are connected and there's um, lineage to all these ideas and what, what this whole, whole human project is about, you know? Um, yeah. So thank you for your time, Doug. Indeed. It was fun to have you here. Well, yeah. Thank you. Thanks for all the stuff you've done. I've loved the videos you made, particularly of course, the ones interpretations of team human monologues and other stuff. They're, <laughs> You know, they're really cool. <laughs> I I mean, I've been influenced by, uh, you know, the cut-up method. And then when, you know, you had that that talk with uh, Genesis, it was just like, I wouldn't even, like, double down more on, like, cutting up your stuff <laughs> to, yeah. to bring that out I know we more. got these... You know, we got these three bonus episodes we're putting out now, which is uh, the the audio cassette recording of my uh, like six hour conversation with Genesis when I first met him, and we were driving from San Francisco to L.A. I mean, and it's so funny, but it's like they're they're, they're the trailheads for everything we ended up working on over the next twenty thirty years. So it's it's fun. Yeah. Okay. Right. Well, cool. Well, it's great to meet you. It's great to meet you, Curry Hobo, and May. <laughs> 